the free for all roundtable round one on round one let's say good morning to mark tui trusted advisor to business and political leaders in again this week for jerry agar deb hutton former advisor to two ontario premiers and scott reed political commentator with ctv and news talk 1010 advisor to prime minister paul martin a uh, happy new year to y'all i know for um, it wasn't a break for everybody but for those who it was a break for welcome back good to have you um let's actually start with this hacker story and i i've been i've probably said it to many times on the show this morning, but as I've been learning more and more about the, the, the way hackers work, I used to think it was just sort of a gang of young people sitting in a boiler room somewhere, and it may be, but then there are, it's almost this corporate-like approach to how to shake people down, and it's a multi-million dollar business. And Deb, as it turns out, some people in the business have a degree of shame because they finally decided trying to shake down a children's hospital in Canada was a bad idea. <laughs> I mean, th this story is disturbing on so many levels. Certainly as a family that depends on sick kids, it is, is very troubling. I, I think back to when uh, our now 15-year-old daughter was first involved with sick kids, and I used to carry a binder because our, our issues were so complex, and I, it was hard to keep track of, of tests and all those things. Now it's all online. And, and I think, wow, if that stuff gets lost, let alone the fear that you're waiting for an important MRI result or 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 some blood work or some other an analytical type um, a test, it, it's really, really scary stuff. And it does make me feel like maybe it's time to go back to old school for some of the things we're doing. Really? After spending more than a billion dollars digitizing the whole thing? <laughs> Well, but as, as a, as a, I'll call it client, customer, whatever you want to call yourself. Like I heard Carmi Levy on your show earlier today, John, talking about how he, he does his passwords. Like there is something to be said for the old way of doing things to protect ourselves. Scott Reed, it takes a pretty soulless person and organization to cause chaos in a children's hospital, but then it takes a pretty soulless person to engage in this kind of shakedown of any enterprise. Scott yeah, and I don't think yeah. people recognize how. I got you. Sure. Yeah, sorry. I don't think, I don't think people realize how prevalent this is. I certainly didn't. I'll speak for myself. I didn't realize how prevalent this was. Ransomware, and it's not a millions of dollars a year business. It's tens, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars a year, and it is completely corporatized. Uh, attack an organization, hold their data ransom. Tell them that they'll expose that. Um, tell the organization they'll expose the fact that their data has been held. Um, ransom unless they pay and you would be shocked how many people pay and the reason i know this is that about six seven years ago i started getting clients who were encountering this and so it's very prevalent and many organizations don't report it to the police because they don't want to deal with the fallout of knowing that they've been compromised and having their clients know they've been compromised so like Yes, small mercy, uh, and I guess somebody has some measure of shame that they spared sick kids, thank goodness. But th this is a lot more prevalent than we recognize, and, uh, and, and there's no incentive for there to be less of it in the future, there will only be more. And Mark Tui, Scott's absolutely right in terms of how organized this is, I mean, and how routine it is, because it's got to the point where, for example, a municipality can take out insurance to cover the ransomware, the ransom that they pay. Yeah, it's, this is a big business. It is a big volume business because the secret to its success is they don't demand exorbitant sums of money. Is they keep the amount affordable enough that rather than go to the cost of, you know, starting afresh, people will pay the money. 
So they're not asking for hundreds of millions of dollars. They're asking usually for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars, depending on the proportion, the size of the, the victim in this case. But here's the thing. I'm not sure that, you know, maybe these guys, you know, have have seen the light and had the sort of conversion on the road to Damascus. And, and they're, But really, these people just locked up all your data and you're going to click on the link in the email that they send to you promising that this is the restore This will make it all better. Really, I'm not clicking on that link. And uh, I imagine that the IT cybersecurity people at SickKids are, you know, looking at that thing six ways from Sunday to figure out whether they actually want to take the lifeline. Yeah, well, Carmi Levy said that if he was offering advice, he'd say, don't deal with them. You know, recover your data on your own, but don't deal with these people. That's not practical, though. That's not what happens. I mean, these guys are so normalized that IT consultants and security consultants can tell you, yeah, you can deal with them transparently and transactionally because they are reliable, because it is that business oriented. It is that it is that transactional. It is that normalized. It's it's an astonishing thing. And it's outside of the vision of most people, but it's there and it's big. You guys have all worked in the business of having to kind of identify cohorts of people in order to secure votes. And a new survey asking people where they situate themselves on the political spectrum in Canada finds the majority of the largest blocks say that they're centrists. And then we have uh, a significant number on the right, but more on the left. And in the States, it's almost the reverse. But uh, Mark Tui, let me start with you, because you used to have to look at polling data all the time when you were trying to figure out how to run a given race. Um, does how people self-identify when asked the question reveal anything? I am a contrarian on this. I have for years now argued that the average person, the 80% of Canadians, are not self-identifying as left, center, or right. They just don't look at politics that way. They look at how does this affect me? How does it affect my family, my friends, my world? And or, you know, does it not? And so I like to divide the world into sort of what I call, for the lack of any better term, pragmatists, people who are about how does this actually change my life? And idealists who are people like us who have the luxury of time to think about, well, what does this mean to the grand picture of things? And pollsters, by and large, just smush those things together and they find a whole bunch of people in the middle. I don't think they're actually in the middle. I think that they're just very far down the horizon in the pragmatic zone. And I think if you segment into quadrants, you find a very different picture. And that's how Donald Trump got elected. That's how Rob Ford got elected. That's how a lot of strange things like Brexit happened, because people are looking at a three-dimensional world through a one-dimensional lens. Although, Scott Reed, if I can turn to you on this one now, um, something I have found in my experience anyway, especially in Canadian talk radio, is in, in the U.S., it's almost like I'm going to be a Republican. Here's the shopping list of the things I must believe when it comes to the environment, the economy, the big lie, whatever. I don't find that people are as hidebound in Canada. I don't think they're hidebound in the United States either. There's a there's a pull because you have a formal registration process. Um, but what those attributes are, those underlying policies, they've transformed enormously, for example, within the Republican Party over the course of the last 10 years. Um, are they Cold War warriors? Nope. Um, are they for uh, small uh, government? Uh, sure weren't under Donald Trump. So, so I mean, Mark is right. I mean, really, this is a marginal value if you're actually working in politics. What you've got to get to is what are the... You know, what are the, the collective attributes that bring people together, that drive their action, drive their interest in politics, might drive their vote? And then you work to align yourself with those things that that's that, you know, sort of left, right in the middle. Like, are you short, tall or are you average? 
80% of people are going to say I'm average height, even people who are six foot seven, you know, like it's just the way it goes. So um, this isn't a surprising result. It's not terribly insightful either. Okay. Last thoughts, Deb Hutton. Yeah, I don't disagree with what either of, uh, of the guys have said. Uh, I think that here in Canada, we pride ourselves, or many people, probably three of us at least on this panel being the exceptions, on not being ideological, on saying we approach elections based on issues. I don't think it's accurate, but I do think that's how you end up with so many people saying they're centrist. It's their way of saying, I make informed decisions when it comes to voting. Let's move on to the world of sport. And Scott, I'll start with you on the football game last night. I, I think a lot of people were toddling back and forth between the junior hockey game and the football game, and the football game turned into a living nightmare. Yeah. So, you know, at this moment, we don't really know what's going to happen. This young man plays for the Buffalo Bills, 24 years old, collapses on the field. They say his cardiac arrest uh, sounds like. He's in critical condition, and who knows what's going to happen with him. So, you know, the only thing I would say, I'm a monster football fan. I'm a monster sports fan. I played football. I coached football for a year. Uh, wrote about football for sports uh, Sportsnet. Like, but I, I, I wring my hands sometimes about the inherent violence of the sport, the violence that I love as a fan of the sport. Like, which I want to be honest about. That's part of what I enjoy. Oh my God, look at that hit! Holy smokes, that guy got planted. But we know and we've known for years that these guys end up, um, you know, with brain damage. We we know that this is a freak event. You know, this hasn't happened before, so we can't use it as illustrative. But it does remind us of the violence of sport. And I got to say, like, I kind of turn myself in knots on that. And uh, I know this much. Um, I won't let my kids play football now. Um, I, I, I won't. And I feel kind of like a hypocrite because I enjoy watching the game. But I don't want my kids to play it. Deb Hutton, were you watching the game when this happened? Yeah, I mean, as you know, John, we're a big Bills family here, and we actually had company over, and the girl, everybody had their jerseys on, the whole bit. It was shocking, and and we still had the station on at eleven thirty when the game normally would have ended, uh, because I think we were all in a bit of shock, just watching it, uh, seeing that emotion on those players. My God, uh, just I mean, it's life and death stuff, as Scott says. That's it's the seriousness of of not just football, but of all sports where there's any amount of contact. It, it was it was. It was scary stuff. And, you know, we sent the kids to bed at a certain point, but it'll be interesting when they wake up this morning uh, to see sort of their thoughts on it as well, because it is traumatic. Yeah, it's. I also didn't let my younger son, who's the only one who wanted to play football, I just refused and would never allow that to happen. And I feel bad about that because it is a sport that a lot of people enjoy. And if you're not playing particularly, you know, competitively, if it's a high school, and I, I, I felt bad denying him that pleasure. But like Scott said, I mean, the downstream implications of it are immense. And I just don't know whether professional full contact football can be played safely, knowing what we know. I think this incident last night was was not a head injury incident. No. It's, uh, and we're going to talk, I hope, with a doctor during the Jerry Agar show about a, a something that actually does happen. It's a bit of a freak accident, but it happens a lot in cricket. It happens a lot in baseball, less so in, in football, called, uh, I think, commodio cordis, which is a freak accident that if you're a hit at the exactly the right time and the cycle of your heartbeat, it will stop your heart dead. And that seems to be possibly what happened last night. Okay, on the happier side of things in the world of sport, a 17-year-old who appears destined for great things. I have to think, Scott Reed, you've been watching the juniors? 
I sure have. And I saw the goal last night. But my favorite part of it was afterwards when this 17-year-old was asked what he thought about breaking the records, most Canadian goals ever, uh, most goals ever by a Canadian junior internationally. And he said, well, you know, gee, I haven't really had time to think about it. We really pulled together as a whole team. And you could literally hear one of the journalists say, oh, come on. So at 17, <laughs> this kid is so trained already as a superstar that he's in robot talk when he does interviews, even at the peak of his performance, even at a moment of glory. Just goes to show you what wankers like me who train people to talk in public have done to uh, the spontaneity of sports. He does seem to be, uh, I don't know, it sounds silly, but somewhat pure, Deb. I mean, he unspoiled. He, he's just a 17-year-old enjoying the ride of his life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's and it's great stuff, and it's inspiring for kids who are in sport, and uh, it's obviously wonderful for Canadians. And as you know, we started the evening watching uh, the, the World Juniors until we, we flipped to the Bills. Um, I, is it going to feature on your show today, Mark Tui, or are you done with this? Because it was the 1st of January was the anniversary, 25th anniversary of amalgamation for the city of Toronto. And Ed Keenan wrote kind of a thoughtful column about whether or not it's achieved anything. Uh, I might have a few things to say on what the city of Toronto needs to do next, because I'm not sure we ever fully amalgamated, but uh, there's a lot of work left undone. Yeah, I'd agree with you. And in his year-end interview, and maybe I can provide you with some clips, uh, John Tory was talking about that, that, you know, downtowners tend to be very selfish downtowners, and people who live in other areas have very little in common. It's kind of like Canada. You know, Albertans don't have that much in common with Newfoundlanders. Uh, good to have you all. Deb Hutton, Mark Tui, and Scott Reed. Catch the roundtable, round one at 745, round two at 845. Weekday mornings on More in the Morning. News Talk 1010 Toronto.